It's Friday, December 10th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 585 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 55 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. My name's Chad. We wasted all of our puns before we started recording. We, we had did. like four really solid puns. But I'm going to go ahead and recycle them anyway. Yeah, I know, because that makes them yeah. funnier. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. right. We have to put our best foot forward. Yes, yes. You know, all we right. don't want to stumble over that stuff, sort of thing. So in... You're going to cut to the chase. <laughs> in the most recent <laughs> episode of the AP, Brodor did something that got us thinking, and for once not about calling the cops, <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about today. So... When the game started, because we're playing Blades in the Dark, mm-hmm. all right, for anyone who's not following the AP, I'll keep this nice and generic. So we're playing Blades in the Dark, and Chad had been GMing, mm-hmm. and the GM torch just got passed to Brodor, and he's now going to run a storyline, mm-hmm. and then it'll pass on from there. I think it's to Eric and then to me, or yeah. I don't know the order, but there's a... Wayne, are you in that list? No. Okay. But there's a lineup of, of people that will be uh, taking their turns with this game. Mm-hmm. So, in the opening scene of the game, rather than starting it with the characters, rather than saying, okay, you guys are in a tavern drinking ale and there's a shady person in the corner and, you know, blah, 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 generic crappy setup, he started with a cut scene. <laughs> which is a hilarious to us, but unintended pun, mm. because one of the things that happened in that scene was somebody literally did get a leg amputated yeah. or something. They did not want this to happen. They, they were attacked, yeah. trapped, and yeah. it was the people who did it were sending a message. Yeah, and, this yeah. was... It was horrible. Bruta- it was horrifying. Yeah, this yeah. was brutality. This was not surgery. Well, mm. and by the people who did it were sending a message, the meta of that was Prodor was sending us a message. Mm-hmm. This why I think this was so brilliant of him to have done this cutscene to start things off. He wanted to let us know what a Brodor game was going to be like. Yeah. We knew what the game was like under Chad. We knew what the feel of it was, mm-hmm. what the tone of it was. He wanted to send the message of this is going to be the tone of a Brodor game. Right. And the cutscene let him do that in a way where he's providing it to us without us screwing up the message he's trying to send. Yeah. And so there's several things that we want to unpack about this. And I don't know if we're going to get to all of them because I think some of them are a little bit more interesting or maybe have legs that others <laughs> don't. <laughs> no, that, that not legs, plural. That's yeah. Not some, anymore. Some of the, yeah. Some of these topics have leg. Yeah. So within this cut scene, it's just like the cutscene of a movie or something like that, where we are watching something in the third person limited, I guess, or mm-hmm. maybe even the third person omniscient. We're watching something occur that our characters are not there to see or participate in. And so he is telling us and walking us through this chain of events that are only populated by non-player characters. And it accomplished two things, as Wayne said. One of them was to give us a sense of the tone of story he was telling. And the second thing that it did was it allowed him to tell a bit of story and to reveal some information that the characters would not otherwise have been present to see. Now, we would have seen the aftermath, 
But there is something very visceral, I guess, about seeing not just the results of something, but the process of it occurring. And not being able to do anything. Yes, you are a helpless passenger. You are a helpless passenger to this. You know, it's seeing the dead body versus watching the murder occur. Mm -hmm. Neither is pleasant, but there is a different level of trauma and investment or whatever you want to call it or shock value. I, I don't know what I want to describe it as exactly. Those are probably too strong a terms, but there's a different sort of emotive reaction to seeing the process, to seeing how the sausage gets made. Mm. I want to start by talking about my hesitation with cutscenes, and then we can come back to sort of dissecting the successes that were in this cutscene. My biggest hesitation with cutscenes in games, because Broder's not the first person I've had do them. A guy that we used to game with all the time, Paul, he loved to game master that way. It was his view that he understood role-playing games through the medium of movies. To Mm -hmm. him, they were like movies. And that was the metaphor of how he told the story. So just as the audience in the movie gets to see what's occurring in a conference room on the Death Star that Luke is not there to see, we too would get at the start of the game an opening scene. Sometimes midway through the game, we'd get a cut over to the bad guy's lair and see what's going on there. Sometimes there'd be an epilogue that would be told as opposed to played. Mm-hmm. And he was good at it. You know, it that was, is the one way I've tried this is I have done the epilogue. It came from the same place that you're saying he described. He looked at it for movies. In my case, it was our last superhero game. I was looking at it from a comic book standpoint. Mm-hmm. Of In the comic books, a lot of times you'll get that last page stinger of you see something that happens that the characters don't see. Yeah. So once or twice I did that to let them see something that the bad guys had going on that their characters never witnessed. And I never really thought about it. It was just something I threw out there that... When I saw Brodor do it, it's like, I've only done that once or twice. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a tool that I could use more in certain situations. I like it only at the beginning or the end, though, because I don't want to interrupt the player's momentum. I want to either have it as an aftermath of what the players have done or before. But I also remember all of those video games that start with a really long beginning scene. And I'm just sitting there rolling my eyes thinking... I want to get to the point where I can save the game, move that save file over, so I never have to watch this cutscene again. (laughs) Final Fantasy VII, I'm looking at you. Probably my worst one for that was Mass Effect. It didn't per se have a super long intro, but it was long enough that, especially once you got past character creation, you know, I was new to the universe. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any idea how things worked or how things would play out. I played through the first 30 minutes of mass effect one i couldn't tell you how many times oh yeah my other big one half-life riding the train down into the mesa yeah where you are moving but you can't actually do anything at the time that was an amazing cutscene because you could move yeah and nowadays it's horrible after you've done it once when i play back through i don't want to ever do that again so yeah i keep that in mind for cutscenes. i think that if you do it too long, you're keeping the players from interacting and doing things. Yeah, exactly. It takes away player agency. 
and reduces their overall participation. And that's, that's my real problem with cutscenes. I don't think I do cutscenes. No, you do cutscenes, but when you do, you give NPCs to the players right. and have them play a part in the cutscene. Yeah. Because my goal as a game master in general is interactivity with the players. They're yeah. either interacting with me or they're interacting with each other, hopefully both. And to me, game mastering success is you're running a game and you sit back as the game master. And you shut up and you don't do anything. And you just sit there in silence and the game is continuing at pace and everyone is having fun and they're really excited. And it's all this interaction, this in-character interaction where they're chewing over a problem or doing some in-character stuff, doing all this. And I just step back and I watch it. I'm like, yep, nailed it. To me, a cutscene is the antithesis of that. It is telling all of my players to stop and that they need to pay attention to me and what I'm saying. And then I'm talking to myself with between two NPCs, which you don't have to do. And I'm describing a scene. I think uh, cutscenes are really good. They're very good when people use them. And they're a great tool. And I don't like to use them. I like being a part of them. I loved Mike's cutscene in his game. It was very shocking. It set the tone. It was excellent. He did a great job. And I would never have done it. Because I... I just don't like telling my players. I don't see this is why I don't like combat, right? We're role playing. We're interacting. Something terrible happens. We're going to go to violence and it's this big scene. And oh my God. And I'm like, stop. All right. Get out your dice. Okay. What's your armor class? It just it changes track. Yeah. Well, it, and when I, when I point to the times that you've used it, our last D and D game that mm-hmm. you, that you ran, right. that's a good example of it. It was always the first thing of the session Mm -hmm. before everyone gets rolling. And you always had one person at the table was active during the cutscene. Yeah. It was a flash forward or a flashback, depending on the scene. And one of us would have our character in that scene. Mm -hmm. That character may be 10 years old instead of the current age of the character. Or we may not realize when it is because you had the flash forward that we didn't no was a flash yeah, forward. And I think they're useful and good things if, first of all, that is your skill as a game master, or right. one of your skills as a game master, that you are really good at painting good scenes, describing character interactions. Mike was great at that. Yes, yes, exactly. But you have to also accept that it is monodirectional storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the primary draw of a role-playing game is that they're participatory. Yep. That you play the game, you affect the game. If that wasn't in there, you might as well read a book or watch a movie or go see a play. I don't even like having my NPCs make speeches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... They can interrupt. The players can interrupt, but they usually don't, so I hate doing them. <laughs> yeah, and I got more to say on NPCs here in a moment, but I do want to say, well, I think they're a good thing. It has to be something that's within your skill box to do. And I would also generally recommend keep them short. Brevity but, is the soul of yeah. Yes, they're, they serve a purpose. When I walk into a restaurant, waiting to be seated is not what I came to the restaurant to do. But that doesn't mean I am therefore prepared to say it's a wholly unnecessary part of the visit. Right. And depending on who the person is, working front of house it may even be an entertaining distraction or Mm -hmm. crack some jokes with them or something like that i don't hate it but i don't want to spend an hour and a half standing in line 
waiting to be seated at a restaurant. If that's happening, I'm going to get in my car and drive to another restaurant. It's like movie trailers. I enjoy movie trailers. I enjoy mm-hmm. seeing what's coming out. I didn't go to the theater to see the movie trailers. Right. I could watch them on YouTube afterwards. If you give me 15 movie trailers, I'm going to be really annoyed. If you give me two or three, yeah. I'm going to be okay with it. I'm a total opposite on that, but I also recognize I'm in the minority. I would never pay for it. But if there was a theater at the movies, like you know, one of their mm-hmm. screens is just showing nothing but trailers, I would happily go in there. You know, get some popcorn, whatever, and watch an hour, hour and a half of trailers. <laughs> I was watching. I don't even know why. I think it's because when I see those story prompts, mm-hmm. it evokes something internally because my brain loves to fill out what that story could be like. And so I get this little mini experience that may or may not even be reflective of the actual movie that just in my neurotic mind, I enjoy such that I would seriously, once again, I wouldn't buy a ticket for it. But I would happily go into the theater and just for free, you know, sit there and watch an hour or two of trailers. But, Wayne, I feel you. The trailers are not what you went there for if you're going to see Ghostbusters or Spider-Man or whatever it is you're trying to watch. The other thing that worries me about cutscenes, in addition to the loss of player agency, is the good old thing of you have to RP with yourself. Right. Some people do it and feel comfortable doing it. Some people are great at doing a variety of voices. I hate role-playing with myself. Yeah. You know, it's like an NPC is having a conversation. A guy comes in. You know, it's like, okay, well, we're going to rob this bank, and we're going to do it like this. Underling comes in and says, oh, sir, there's someone here to see you. Okay, thanks, Lieutenant. And then you care. That's yeah. fine. I'm talking, and I'm sure you're talking to whole scenes yeah yeah right like a fight between two npcs arguing how dare you say that what did i say well i don't know and this is a really uncomfortable scene but we're gonna do it for 20 minutes npcs with the party i've noticed for all of us tend to be really quiet npcs even if their personality is not to be quiet if they're around another npc they suddenly go mute well like in the ap I have an NPC named Callum and Callum serves a couple of different purposes. He is a window to the world for the players. Like if they have a question about how the world works, because it it is a different kind of world and the players, many of the players never played blaze before. Callum is a walking Wikipedia who can just kind of GM fiat answer a quick question in character and kind of keep the mood going. Callum is involved in certain aspects of the plot secretly in ways that if it's never revealed, it doesn't matter. But when the players edge into these aspects of the plot, he can give a little bit of color to them in a realistic manner. He is also the character that I plan on playing. Like my main character, when the GM torch passes around a bit, He is the main A-team guy that I plan on playing. When I eventually play him, he's going to be a lot more chatty. He is going to have a lot of opinions. He's going to have a lot of things to say. And he's going to say them in very callum, weird sort of ways because he's kind of an odd person. But he's not like that when I'm the GM. You know what's funny is it took me a moment to process that. You said chatty. (laughs) I first heard chatty. 
Um, <laughs> and but you know what? Both of those adjectives work. Yeah, they actually do both work. So I, I had a moment there to mm. mentally rewind, but we're we're still good. Good. We still have a leg to stand on. Yes. <laughs> One of the things that I'm going to give on cutscenes that I think is a mixed bag. It is both good and bad simultaneously. And which it's going to be, is it going to work or not work, depends on how it's executed and how it sticks, is it reveals information. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we get asked a lot, that a lot of game masters seem to struggle with, is how do you reveal information that the characters would not otherwise be privy to, but are an integral part of the story? Okay, so for example... You want to reveal some of the motivations of the bad guy. Well, there are ways of doing it that don't require a cutscene. They might interact with the bad guy. They might find nonverbal information. They go into his house, they rifle through his mail, and they find a card that's getting ready to go out to his sick aunt who has cancer and they can't afford the treatments. And now you're starting to piece together motivations and such. Maybe you have an encounter with one of the henchmen and they tell you, hey, you don't realize or you don't know that this person's much better or much worse or not quite what you think they are. And there are ways of trickling that information out more organically. But these cutscenes can also help reveal information that's fun for the players to know or adds depth or a sense of intrigue to the game without requiring them to be present for it to be trickled out. Wayne, in comic books, this would be your meanwhile page. Exactly. Meanwhile, back at the layer of doom, this is what's occurring. Well, and this would have been a really useful tool if I would have thought about it in my last Dresden Files game. They're big bad. They didn't actually meet in person until within the last four or five sessions. Mm. She was a mastermind manipulator, and they were dealing with everything she was doing. She was involved with things, but they didn't actually see her until the end. I could have done little cutscenes in a session here or there, giving orders or something, so you actually have the players see this thing instead of... We felt her effects, but we didn't personalize her right we interacted with henchmen bad guys and we developed feelings and emotions and opinions about them and with the big bad it was this person bad they had a personality and a history and stuff but merely by the fact that we did not interact with them the data points we needed to have opinions was very limited. Yeah. And I found ways in the last yeah. four or five sessions to make it personal. Right. But I had to find ways to make it personal. Where if I would have done some of these scenes early on, it would have been in the player's mind, even though the characters didn't know her. Well, in a lot of big bads, they come on the scene where that's the big bad. If they're ever in our sights, it's shoot to kill sort of thing. So you can't necessarily put them on the table until you're ready because the characters won't talk to them. Yeah. And so it'd be useless. And, and it's like, you've got your fight 20 sessions too early. I think a cutscene is a good way to develop their personality and transmit that to the players to give them something to hate and to give a face to what they hate. Yeah. 
Because, yeah, it's it's a risk. Anytime you put any person or NPC on the table in front of the players, something could happen and they decide to go into combat. Yeah. And then that chess piece is no longer there for you to work. And cutscenes, if you pull them off, mm-hmm. can be a great way to communicate information, to give a sense of feel or setting or depth in a way that the players would not otherwise directly encounter. Assuming, once again, that this is within your wheelhouse to do, mm-hmm. that this sort of thing you can do. Well, and know your players, too. I have played with people who are of the opinion of, if their character doesn't know it, they don't want to know it. Yeah. It's yeah. not even a spoiler thing. It's just a matter of, I want my reactions to be genuine. And Yeah, let's use an extreme example. Let's say it's a murder mystery. You start off the game with a cutscene of the murder going down. All right. No one's mm-hmm. going to. I struggle running mysteries. Sure. Plot mysteries, yes. But a true, like, whodunit sort of mystery is not one of my strengths as a game master. And I think there are ways you can do it where you see a woman sitting in a cafe and all of a sudden you see this figure in the background come in and whatever happens. And it's all very veiled and you don't mm-hmm. really have a clear yeah. sense of what occurred. If you want an example, look at any police procedural TV show that's mm-hmm. out there because yeah. that's how all or, of them start. Yeah. Or film noir is yeah. a lot like that. That's another you good know, yeah. Film noirs are great on that one because you see a crime, but it's never what you think it is because that's the point of the genre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. not what you think it is or the person's not who you think they are. And the show CSI did this quite a bit. Yeah. Wayne was talking about procedurals. And I guess that's a crime lab procedure, which is pseudo police, but whatever. Point being, though, that, yeah, they oftentimes were misleading you with that scene. But if you are too open, Mm -hmm. if you are too honest, then you are taking away the ability of the players to discover information on their own. And Chad, as you noted, some people feel very strongly about the fact that they want a completely fair above board game where if they didn't roll it, they didn't get it. If they didn't see it, they didn't get it. If they weren't there, then they weren't there. And they want this to be very, very carefully crafted to be in character. And I'm going to tack on to the end of Know Your Players with Read Your Table. When people are starting to get checked out, when mm-hmm. people are starting to get bored, your cutscene either has gone on too long or you didn't put it together very well, and it's time to wrap it up and pass control to the players as quickly as possible. Brodor did a great job. It was colorfully described. (laughs) It was a relatively quick hit. It only lasted a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, single digit, like two, three, five minutes. I don't know exactly, but it was short. It was impactful. And he then goals that he achieved. And he immediately then put us into the action. Right. We had an immediate opportunity to respond to what this cutscene had revealed. It didn't leave us with this pent up, unfulfilled outlet. And. He had an NPC that was much loved by the characters we were playing. We were playing our B team. And basically, this was the boss of the B team that he had grabbed and assaulted. Well, and besides that, I think it was an NPC much loved by the players. By the players, yeah. And he had that NPC assaulted. And sort of my response, I guess, to the people who are like, well, I only want to know what my character knows and nothing else. We get thrown into these, into our characters And our characters don't know this has happened yet. In fact, it is a normal 
boring day as we walk into our characters with the player knowledge of not only this happened, but this signifies an even greater danger. It's not about the attack. It's about what the attack means. And we go into that. And to me, that was great because what a challenge that is, right? What a challenge that is to figure out how to play my character so nonchalant. Yeah. You know, like play the characters with a sense of ignorance. yeah. Yeah. And it's like none of this running a game, playing a game is about genuine reactions. Well, yeah, just it's like, a simulation. Just like every game master and every player has their strengths and weaknesses, every group has its strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses. And one of the things I will compliment our current AP group for is we're very good about playing the games fairly. Mm-hmm. That if we Not don't... cheat all the time. Yeah, exactly. If we <laughs> don't know something, we're good at playing it mm-hmm. like we don't know it, even though we as players do. We're very good at separating character knowledge from out-of-character knowledge. And, yeah, you feel something. And you know what? That's a virtue of it. You feel invested even before your character actually is. Mm -hmm. That I, as the player, am now suddenly very upset about or very happy about or whatever a piece of action that my character Mm -hmm. is otherwise completely oblivious to. But even if I don't cheat, even if I don't play my character as if he or she knows something they shouldn't or whatever, there is still that eagerness now to get involved. I want Mm, my character to find the first clue. I want to work my way up to the point where I get to understand what the player already knows and am able to respond to it. The game is to get to the plot that was presented. The game is not to avoid the plot and the game is not to stumble around in the dark a game master when they give you information that your character doesn't know they are doing it for a reason they want you to know that they they want you to know that so you act on it they just don't want you to suddenly psychically know that your mother's house has been broken into and it's like Oh, well, I haven't seen mom in three years. Better just stroll on over to her house for no reason. No, you make it happen, but you make it happen in the right way. Organically, yeah. I can give an example here that's not from role-playing games, but I think does a great job of illustrating this. Several years back, HBO put out a miniseries about the life of John Adams. Mm -hmm. I think it was like six or eight episodes long. It was a fantastic series. I think Paul Giamatti, I mm-hmm. believe, was the one who played John Adams. Yep. It is a great miniseries. If you've never seen it and you're at all interested in that sort of story, very well put together. Now, as a product of American education and American culture, guess which perspective I am most familiar with regarding the events prior to, during, and immediately following the Revolutionary War? The Americans. Yeah, yeah, obviously. One of the things that I really appreciated about that show was while it was not the major crux of the show, they had these scenes where you start to see King George and Mm. you hear his perspective. And I'm not an expert on British monarchs, but it is my understanding from what historians have commented that their portrayal of King George is fairly consistent to and plausible given what we know about King George. 
I really appreciated mm. hearing how King George, at least according to this portrayal, viewed the events, viewed the war, the politics that he was dealing with in terms of his own noblemen. And that the Sons of Liberty were terrorists. And Parliament. Yeah, I mean, you saw it from both sides. (laughs) And you could draw your own conclusions. But I was given information, perspective, and yes, even sympathy for a side of the story that as it is taught to us, mm-hmm. we normally do not get nearly enough information on. The Boston Massacre is way more complex than you think it is. Yeah. It was not one-sided. Well, and they deal with that because mm-hmm. John well, Adams, he yeah. was the attorney that had to try and defend the... And his cousin was a terrorist yeah. who <laughs> instigated the death of a lot of Americans in that. Yeah, yeah. and it was yeah. a... Crazy set of events, but mm-hmm. I just want to give that as an example of why cutscenes can, if done right, provide critical information. And we talked about how this was Brodor setting the stage of this is what his game was going to be yeah. like. I think it worked better being a darker game, mm-hmm. but you could go the other way. Let's say, Chad, you were the one running the really dark game and you were maiming NPCs <laughs> left and right. Brodor could have started off with a clown walking in with squeaky shoes, and that would have told us, okay, he wants a lighter game. Well, think of it this way, too. So in my game, the the Blades game that I was GMing, there were two games. There's an A team and a B team, and there are very, very different tones between the A team and the B team. The A team, you know, there's some funny stuff in there, like, I mean, it's this group, there's always going to be... But it was serious. In fact, it gets dark. In fact, it gets pretty psychological. In fact, it gets pretty psychedelic at times. It gets very weird. Uh, It's very Robert Louis Stevenson style horror. Yeah. I guess is a way of describing it. Yeah. I really wanted to play with reality without really getting into like the color from outer space Lovecraft thing. But I wanted to. That is my favorite Lovecraft story. This is the best Lovecraft story other than horror Vernismuth. But they're both great. But yeah, I wanted to play with reality because most of the players at the table were unfamiliar with Blades in the Dark. So I could really play with the reality in the way I wanted it to. But that's a side tangent. The B team, on the other hand, they're funny personalities. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's a comedy game with the B team. We're going to go punch some Nazis. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very gonzo. Yeah, yeah, it is very gonzo. It's it's they're they're knuckle draggers. They're door kickers. They are really not nice people. They're very broken and they're very like strange. They're not the top yeah. shelf criminals. Where the main team is more planning and big picture. They're definitely more. We need to do something. Let's yeah. just go hit someone. Right. Not doing anything is the dumb idea. It's like, <laughs> yeah. is it? Is it really not that dumb idea? No, okay, we'll go, we'll go with it. We'll just do something. No, it, it I mean, we started a candy war, but the <laughs> but the B team has a lighter feel to it. And the B team game that I ran had no real reality bending stuff. It had no psychological drama. It had no psychic drama. So it, it, it has a very different sort of tone to it. In Brodor's game, we are playing the B team. The A team's on a train coming into town. They're going to be way out. So we're starting with the B team. And one of the questions I asked him, not knowing he was going to do any of this. Well, I, actually, I did kind of know a little bit of what he was had planned, but I didn't know how far he would go with it. I asked him, okay, we're playing the B team. Dude, your first time with this group. 
B-Team's little comedy. Is this going to be like kind of a comedy game? Do you want us to play it more serious? And he very straight faced, great poker face was like, no, just just play it how you want, man. How, however it turns out is, is how it's going to turn out. No big deal. Yeah. You do what you want to do sort of thing. And then, boom, this cutscene like bear traps and kids sawing people's legs off, blood on the cobblestone, yeah. jaws hitting the floor. And we're like, holy, f- that's I don't want to say it's yeah. awesome. It's horrible, but I'm in. Yeah. And we all approached it differently. Yeah. We started off very jovial slapstick like these yeah. characters normally are mm-hmm. until they found out what happened right and then suddenly these characters got vicious yeah not laser focused right because that's not what they are they don't have a, in fact the person who got their leg taken off and got put in the hospital now of action was their planner and we played it like these guys are angry they're tough they're dangerous and let's admit it they're kind of dumb yeah yeah <laughs> and their head just got cut off so they're just going to start swinging to this day. I don't even know if we did anything substantive. I mean, we did a lot. We caused a lot of damage, but I don't know if we did what we intend. We thought we were doing, you know, which is great. Yeah, we did not do what Brodor thought we would do, though. We That's for do, sure. Yeah. It's like, OK, well, we're going to send this message and we're going to do this thing. And we're going to re- No, I mean, we just hurt people. Yeah, I mean, really. We just hurt people, <laughs> which is great. I think one of the potential pitfalls of these cutscenes is you are committing to information. That's not necessarily a wholly bad thing, mm-hmm. but I think it can be a little bit limiting. And here's how. One of the things that we have espoused on the show, as long as we've been doing it, is you as a game master are not committed to anything you have not revealed at the table. If you have a whole plot in town A, and the players instead insist on going to town B, no problem. The things that were going to occur in town A can now occur in Mm -hmm. town B. You can make the game very modular, very portable, very discreet. I don't mean quiet. I mean discreet as in discreet individual pieces that you can take apart and recombine in any way you like. Or if they come up with a plan you hadn't thought of, you don't have to let them see you sweat. You know, you can pretend you always expected that. Or if they're not responding to something, they don't care about something, you can change up the focus of things. But if you do one of these cutscenes, which let's stress once again, the players are not involved in. This is purely consumptive information, pure consumption. You have now committed to this being true. And I think one of the ways you can mitigate that is by having it be something that either they can respond to or not respond to immediately. So you know instantly whether you've got to retread that or not. And secondly, as mentioned before, you can choose to veil the scene a bit to make some of the events ambiguous, to make some of the events kind of occurring in Mm -hmm. shadows and unfocused lenses. So you can mitigate this. But keep in mind that whatever you have put on the table, you have now committed to being true in some way. Now, if you're a good storyteller, you're quick on your feet, maybe you can spin it so it's all true, but not the way they think it's true. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the less you commit to, the better. But if you have, you know, these expository cutscenes that reveal story, reveal character, you are giving up some of your ability to 
change those things on the fly later. Now, I don't think that right there is a reason not to do it, but I think it should be a consideration of are you truly prepared to commit to what you're about to say? Because, you know, these are things that, once again, you are telling to the players. This is out-of-character information. It's not the same as the players being lied to. You are lying at the level of narration. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge no-no for GMs. To have deceptive or misleading events in the game is one thing, but for you as a game master to just intentionally at the narrative level lie about the world or try to mulligan everything, I mean, yeah, don't be super anal about it. It is a game we're here for fun, but I'm not a big fan of making that a regular yeah. go-to. Well, there's a, I think there's a big difference between presenting some information and it isn't what they think it is or perception. That's yeah. what I play with a lot when I do uh, in the D&D game, when I did the, the flash forwards and the flashbacks and stuff, it was all about perception. I did scenes that took place in the future that will happen. They have to happen because of what you just said. You know, the game master presented something, put it on the table as an event that the players were taking part in that has not yet occurred. And I need the players to have free will perfect agency and do what was just presented. And one of the tools that I used to do that was perception. I did not lie about what happened, but I limited their understanding of something. You know, you, you see something far off in the distance and it's a little dot. And it, since it's just a little dot or a line in the distance, you think, Oh, well that's just a person. But as it comes towards you, you realize it's a horse yeah, because it was straight on and was far away. And you weren't looking at it from the side, so your perception was was different. I think you can really play with that. And then also the, the film noir thing of you are just not given the whole puzzle. Like, there's this whole tapestry of stuff that is going on and happening, and you are just zoomed in on one piece. And then when it zooms out, it changes. Well, in that blank, dark area outside the zoom in, nothing has been established. And a moderating, so yeah, and a moderating truth to that is you can also fall off the opposite side of the road here by making everything so vague or so misleading. What was the point? What was the point? Yeah, yeah, that the players do not walk away with anything well, that either a they understood at all or b maybe they understood me, it, but they're so used to being lied you, to they ignore it. Let, let me ask a, you two guys a question. This is actually not necessarily an RPG game master session. This is a writer question, right? Like as, as writers, as story creators, what is your take on this? There is a view in storytelling, creating, writing, movie making, whatever. If there is no point to it, do not put it in your story. That sort of take like a scene of dialogue between two characters that does not advance the plot. It doesn't expound on the characters. It doesn't reveal new information. It may be like clever turns of phrase in a scene that you enjoy, and it may not be a bad scene, but it does not do anything. There is a view amongst writers and creators that if it does not do something in your story, cut it. There's another view of your story is a whole living, breathing thing, right? And two people talking, if the scene is good and entertaining, 
even though it doesn't advance the story or the characters or reveal anything or do anything, the, the scene in and of itself is there for its own existence, and that's fine. So a cutscene like that, so rolling back to a role-playing game, a cutscene, though, which A or B, you know, it's like if it doesn't advance something, cut it, or the scene is there for its own ends. So for me, it depends on the type of story being told. There is something to be said for conversations that don't really give you anything about the characters or move scenes along from the standpoint of making the story feel more real. Mm -hmm. Because not every conversation you have forwards your life or says something about I mean, look at our entire back catalog of Fear the Boot. I mean, it's just a wasteland. (laughs) Yeah. So there is something to be said for those slice of life moments in certain types of stories that just make the world feel more real. Mm -hmm. If you have limited time or you're telling a really focused story, then yeah, you You kind of need to cut that out. Even if it's stuff you really like, maybe release that as a separate short story. But overall, I don't have a problem with a lot of that because I like the slice of life Mm -hmm. making it feel more real. I'm going to give two examples here per your parameters of this neither from role-playing games that i think show kind of different approaches to this the first is going to be princess bride Mm -hmm. what is the significance of the fact that a grandfather is reading a bedtime story to his kid right that whole thing that can be cut yeah i mean you could cut all of that content and still have a perfectly cogent story i think what it adds is it does give you a sense of understanding the story in its own terms that this is whimsy, this is a fairy tale, that this may be getting embellished or altered by the grandfather. Well, there, that it's, and it does set up a great gag at the end where the kid is like, oh, well, you know, okay, fine, it just works. And the kid's like, wait, no, no. And, it, <laughs> and he's like, well, I thought you didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it creates a context of whimsy mm-hmm. that helps you interpret yeah. the movie, even yeah. though in the most reductive utilitarian sense, it does not need to be there. I do not think the movie would be the hit it is if it wasn't. Yeah, I completely agree. Another example. And that's the antithesis of that sort of minimalist. Was it called the, the Ohio school of writing or the Idaho school of writing or whatever it is, where it's, it's that sharp minimalism where every story is a knife edge of the least amount of effort to. Yeah. I think another thing I would say, though, is you don't always know what people care about or why. Right. We're seeing this as we're working on the Skies of Glass beta rules. The things people are latching on to doesn't always line up with what we've been working on. And so that kind of edges what we are working on. Mm -hmm. But an example I'll give of this is Lord of the Rings. As you go through Lord of the Rings, there are some people that are really invested in the story that are really invested in the legends, that are really invested in just immersing themselves in that world. These are the types of people that read and enjoy the Silmarillion, and there's nothing wrong with that. Then there's people like me who are like, I don't care. Right. I, I, yeah, what, I don't I am, care. I'm invested in the story of the One Ring. It's a great story. It's an important work of literature that I don't give two shits about. Yeah, it is a great example because I will point to the character Tom Bombadil. Oh, my God. There cut is, it. Cut that whole chapter. And I feel Useless. exactly the same way. But he's got but big fans. Exactly. There are people does, out there yeah. that were devastated I'm that he was cut them. from the movie. Yeah. I'm so but, thankful he was. 
<laughs> but yeah, I completely agree. I yeah. would have liked to have seen more of the singing cut from the movie. Yeah. Right. And when I'm reading the Lord of the Rings books, I've said before, and it's completely true, that when I get to any portion where it's italicized and indented, <laughs> because yeah. it's going to be three or four or five pages of them singing some elven or dwarven or whatever mm-hmm. legend, and someone who's really invested in the world wants to know more about that, but... I don't personally care. I'm not invested in that aspect of the story. And it's great that it is visually different. Mm -hmm. And secondly, is not necessary to understanding the story. So the moment it's like Aragorn whips out his tuba and starts going, (laughs) I know to flip three pages. Let's let's use, let me give another example. you You want a good example of that? Blows Lord of the Rings Cimmerillion out of the water. It's a little book called American Psycho. (laughs) <laughs> this book is about a guy and there's a movie on the movie is I hesitate to say good. I mean, it's about a psychopath murderer, but it is a good movie. It is a story about a guy in the eighties who is completely schizophrenic. He has no sense of guilt and he is an alien, so to speak amongst sane people, except in the eighties business, New York business, financial people are so shallow and so money-driven, he blends in perfectly. Yeah. He is just like all of them, except they're not crazy. And in the book, though, and they do this scene in the movie. In the book, there's like three of these chapters, right? So you're reading about his thoughts and how he's crazy and about how he has all this stuff. And it's like the sub-commentary on the 80 shark business world. Is that and the, the one cocaine. where he starts talking about bands he likes and so why he likes you'll them? you'll flip the page in this insanity... And a new chapter starts, yeah. and it's about Huey Lewis and the News, and about how their new album wasn't as strong as their last album. And I am talking in a college-level, yeah. in-depth, academic assessment of Huey Lewis and the News that goes on for like 75 pages. Yeah. And it's not an insane rant. The existence of it, told the first person, proves insanity. And I think there's a Whitney Houston chapter as well. There might be a third chapter on that. There's chapters on other stuff that is similar in the movie. They do Huey Lewis and the news on it, but it is a perfect example of that. It does nothing. Yeah. You already know but, the guy's crazy. Right. But if you're in the book for a oh, look they, into this mind, then it does serve a purpose. And they, I think if it wasn't in the book, the book wouldn't be what it is. Yeah. And you know what? I didn't read those chapters. Well, and that, I got two pages in and I, I flipped to the, the last page of that chapter, sure enough, Huey Lewis in the news still going, and I just skipped, just skipped it. the chapter. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there, a writer or a movie maker has a disadvantage over a game master, and that they cannot actively query their audience to find yeah, out what they care we, about. We can read the room, and if we're going on a rant about Huey Lewis in the news, and then it's like, oh man, this is really going to drive this point home to the yeah. group. This is so awesome. And they're like, what? I'll, well, you, you can wrap that shit up. I'll throw out another example. Dune. Oh, oh. The whole book. Uh-oh. I am Wayne's going to go crazy <laughs> here. He <laughs> loves that book so much, Dan. You got to be careful. I His am, favorite thing. I am so invested mm-hmm. in Ix that if there was like the Ix trilogy, so I would have already read it. Your But obsession. I recognize that... That's not what the universe is about. Your obsession with the X drives me insane 
for the reason, and it's only one reason. Now, if we don't count his son's boy, I'm just talking Frank Herbert, who's dead. Yeah, yeah. Dune, it's two sentences. Like, literally two sentences. Yeah. They, they do now, get developed in, more in they, later. They get yeah, developed more in the later books. In the Apocrypha. And, but. Right. And then his son's book, the house books, actually deal with him quite a bit because there's like the civil war and stuff but yeah it's just like oh this x stuff and i'm like oh my god it's two sentences this <laughs> no, well they mean this and this and this and this i'm like no it's two sentences and See, if, that reminds me of star wars how every character has a name right. and probably a book in the extended universe oh and is god. somebody's favorite character it, every yeah. character that is mentioned that doesn't even have speaking lines even if you the name isn't mentioned the character has a name and an academic level Wikipedia entry on the Star Wars yeah, Wikipedia. And for me, I don't get into that with Star Wars, but I've been known to do that with Star Trek. Yeah. And Star and, Trek has Memory Alpha. It's the same thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've spent a lot of time on Memory Alpha. Memory Alpha, you can go down a real deep rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. I just finished an audiobook of the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. Wow. It was actually read by Kate Mulgrew. Hmm. It was really good. It gets into some of that stuff, and it made me actually go out to Memory Alpha and start digging into more characters. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's the point I want to close this out on, is that the Aliens Wikipedia has an entire huge article on Ripley's cat. That doesn't surprise me. Which has what less I wish than 30 develop, seconds of screen time. What I wish <laughs> they would develop more for Aliens, and maybe they have in some of the books or some There's of the... A lot, a lot of books. Is, a lot of there stuff. are other... Aliens. sapient alien species out there the aliens role-playing game the original one i i believe that the universe is not just humans yeah the, there are other aliens out there the original aliens role-playing game is not about fighting aliens yeah it's about playing space marines and there's actually bigger threats than the aliens. yeah in fact at the start of the movie alien is this just another bug hunt well not just well, is this another bug hunt while they're sitting in the galley one of them talks about having sex with an alien Mm-hmm. A, a sapient, intelligent alien, like out of right. you know Star Trek type alien. I don't mean alien isn't a xenomorph, the, but the story bible for aliens. And if nobody's familiar, a, a story bible is like a book that the end consumer doesn't read about a movie or something like that, or a video game, or even a book. Book series has a bible, which is just all the facts. Yeah, about, to try and keep consistency. Right. Yeah, for alien and aliens. The the Bible for the movies is huge. And you can go out to the Aliens Wiki. All of the Space Marines have huge backstories yeah. that is never mentioned in the movie. It never comes up. It's not important. And Alien is also a unofficial, because Ridley Scott sort of tied mm-hmm. it all together, sequel to Blade Runner. Yep. Which... And Aliens and Predator exist in the same universe. Yeah. So what I want to close this out on is a reminder that as a game master, it's okay to experiment and you have the advantage because you don't have one book and one audience and no feedback. You have a lot of tools that mm-hmm. a general storyteller does not. You are getting real-time feedback from a very small group of people. And if you fail, you have plenty of room to back it off and recover or just make a mental note, do it better, do it different, don't do it again, based on how it worked for you. So don't hesitate to experiment. But I recommend if this is not a skill of yours, or you don't know, and God bless the people that are brave enough to experiment, but go ahead and try it. Yeah. 
but do it in small bits. Fail do a short fast. Exactly. Yep. Do a short little scene that doesn't matter too much. See how it works. See what worked, what didn't work. And then you can make a decision on whether this is going to modify your GMing style or if this was a restaurant you're never going to go to again. There's a very simple flowchart for it, too. Brevity is the soul of wit. Keep it short. If you can't or won't keep it short, pull in a player, either their character or have them play an NPC. If it goes longer than that, pull in multiple players. If it goes longer than that, it's not a cutscene anymore. It's a B-team game, and that's cool, too. Yeah, you're just B-teaming the bad guys. Yep. So, with all that said, nothing in the show notes. Might link a thing or two based on some of the stuff we talked about. But other Fear the Con's coming. Fear the Con is coming up. Check out our Discord. I hear Facebook is rocking. We have a Patreon. Yeah. There's a Patreon. Yeah, there's a Patreon. We never talk about it. Yeah, patreon.com slash fear the boot. If you want to By the way, Wayne will never say this about himself. Wayne runs Game Notes, which is a small, tiny podcast that is Patreon-only content, and it is phenomenal. Yeah. I don't listen to podcasts. I started listening to it because Wayne talks about our game, our our regular, we have a Wednesday game. Yeah. The fastest and way to make Chad listen to a podcast is say you talk about it. Is say you talk about it because I'm a, I'm a raging egotist. Yeah. So, of course, I run out there and I listen to it. And it's gotten me hooked because he talks about games that I'm not in that I still listen to. Yeah. They're excellent and then also there are you get 91 the, episodes of yep. them out right now. Chris all, has something about being old or being in a car. I don't know. One or the other. Being old in a car. And being old in a car. It, it's called driving at 10. <laughs> <laughs> That's miles per hour. Yeah, yeah, age. no, no. Yeah. yeah. Age would be 10,000. Yeah. He's basically counting down the days until mm-hmm. his doctor takes away his license. Right. Well, parties. until his personal odometer flips, you yeah. know, flips over. And then he ends up having to do the straight story and drive a riding lawnmower yeah. everywhere. Right. But anyway, no, there is I've, some. I've heard those are good. There is some great it's car PG. Car, car P- <laughs> That's no, what he calls I it. I take it back. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is some good content yeah, heard, out there. Yeah. Also, the show raws, the negative episodes mm-hmm. we can't release to the general stream because they're too. Mm hmm. Well, we released off color. We released a negative episode that we can't release to the normal stream, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. So anyway, I'll link some things in the show notes for you guys Mm -hmm. to check out. But on that, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2021. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.